Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Curley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Tim Stevens. Hi Tim. Hi Mike, how are you? I'm very well sir, how are you? I'm doing great. Do you know what you were last on this show on episode 50? I remember very well, that was a lot of fun. So Tim, what do you like to be known for these days? That's a very good question because it seems like it's shifting uh, pretty pretty dramatically, pretty frequently. Uh, I am, you know, these days uh, I'm, I'd like to be known for writing really interesting pieces on stuff. I was I almost said tech, but that's not necessarily true anymore because I'm writing about automotive stuff uh, as much as I'm writing about tech these days. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to really do interesting deep dive stories that. Um, that your average tech journalist or your average journalist in general isn't really given the time to uh, time to do so. So I'd really like to be known as uh, as a, a great writer with great perspective, I guess, if that's okay. That's perfect. I like cool. it. Cool. Well, thank you. So the last time that I had you on the show, the episode was called Being Editor-in-Chief, um, and that was in reference to the work that you were doing at Engadget. But, but now you've moved over to CNET. Um, you parted ways of Engadget in July, um, of 2013. We don't need to go into much more than that. I think the listeners of the show kind of have a frame of reference, but you can feel free to expand on it if you want to. But when uh, this came about in July, what were the first things that you did, if you can remember? Uh, I seem to recall playing a lot of video games because I had not been able to do that for the two and half or two and three quarter years before that I had been the editor in chief you know there wasn't time for those sorts of things uh, so I played some video games I also um, it was toward the end of the summer getting toward the end of the summer getting toward the end of the racing season and I have uh, I have a car that I'd wanted to be doing some racing with that year but it needed some work and I hadn't had the time to do it so I actually spent the better part of two weeks lying on my back in the garage doing uh, a variety of procedures to this car that I've been putting off for a long time. Uh, and so I did uh, did motor mounts and uh, a lot of other tune-ups and stuff like that on the car and, and took it out racing and I had some fun doing that too. So I basically took a couple of weeks and, and did a lot of things that I hadn't had the time to do for the the time that I'd been at Engadget because from, from day one at Engadget when I started as editor-in-chief back at the beginning of uh, 2011, um, it was really pretty much flat out working you know, 18-hour days uh, at the beginning was seven days a week. It was just insane. It got a little bit easier as we went on, but it was always crazy. Uh, there was always always more work to be done than than there were hours in the day. So it was good for me to to take a little bit of time to step away and to to decompress and to do some kind of uh, manual labor like working on the car, the kind of thing that doesn't require a lot of thought. Uh, that was a nice change of pace. You took some Tim time. Some Tim time, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. So I assume that during this time, the phone was ringing off the hook, right? I can imagine somebody who's been who has the experience that you have um and has held the positions that you have and is you know kind of as loved as you are in the the community would it be fair to say that you were getting lots of job offers uh yeah i i was very lucky to have been approached by a lot of different people during that time um i was getting a lot of calls a lot of emails a lot of kind words uh, and it was really rewarding because you know when your head's down uh, doing what I was doing at Engadget for so long, you know, I wasn't really, when I made that jump to Engadget in 2011, uh, I wasn't thinking career-wise, I wasn't thinking, you know, this is going to be a great step for my career and I'll be able to go to great places and do great things after this. It was very much just uh, a, a job that I felt 
needed to be done and that I was going to be good at. Uh, and so I went for it. Uh, and so, you know, when that ended uh, as abruptly as it did in July, uh, I really had no idea what was next, what my next step would be. Um, and so to have those calls and to be getting those those notes uh, and to, to even be getting calls from from PR agents from, from various companies that I'd worked with, various consumer technology companies, and have them call me and tell me, you know, the, the respect that they had for the work that we've been doing at Engage and the, the, the way that I was running the team, the team that I built. Uh, it was always really, really encouraging to hear um, because, you know, that, that again was not something that I, that I thought anybody else was seeing. Um, so that was, that was really encouraging. At any point during this period, did you think about trying to do something completely new? Um, well, I guess it depends how you define completely new. I mean, I, I come from a software developer background. I think we talked about that before. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it was definitely in the back of my mind uh, going back to that world because I still get emails and calls pretty regularly from from folks that I worked with back in those days wanting me to go back and do the the software architecture, software design thing. Um, but I really didn't, um, didn't want to go back to that. So it, it was definitely something in the world of journalism that I wanted to do. Uh, the big decisions on my end were whether I wanted to stay in consumer technology or whether I wanted to make the jump over to the, the world of the automotive journalist. Um, which, you know, has been, uh, I've loved consumer tech since I was a kid. You know, I, I grew up playing video games and, and writing terrible basic programs on my Commodore. Uh, but I've also loved uh, cars and motorcycles for as long as I can remember, too. Uh, so those have always been the my two passions. And uh, I had a couple of opportunities to kind of jump over to the other side of the fence. Um, but but I was able to actually get a role that allows me to, to kind of play with, uh, with both worlds. Was there anything that happened during this period that um, either surprised you or taught you a lesson that you wasn't expecting? Well, the beginning of that period certainly taught me a lesson. Uh, <laughs> that being, um, don't uh, don't invest yourself too uh, too much emotionally in in a property that you don't actually have any ownership over. Uh, I think that's an important lesson that I learned and. It's an important lesson, I think, that everybody should know getting into situations like that. Um, but through this period, I, I mean, I guess I learned that, that people are a lot more perceptive and a lot more aware of uh, the, the sort of work that you're doing than, than I'd expected. Uh, and so people knew a lot more about me than I thought they did. You know, people were paying attention a lot more than I thought that they were. So the, the offers I was getting and the, uh, the inquiries I was receiving were, were very, very pointed and very, you know, very hard to ignore for sure. I had a lot of great conversations. Um, so, you know, in terms of doing something totally different or in terms of, of any surprises, uh, yeah, I was just surprised at, at how much people had really kind of uh, understood me and understood what I was trying to do. What about the sort of uh, the reaction from fans, uh, followers and stuff like that? What was that like? The initial outpouring of support was amazing. Um, it, it, I mean, the, the the tweets I was seeing that day and the comments on Google Plus and everything were were overwhelming. Uh, it was it was so great to see all that feedback because that was a that was a rough couple of days in the beginning, as, as one can can easily imagine. Uh, and then um, throughout, I mean, I, I was getting. E emails and notes from people all the time, just very eager to see what I was doing next. And of course, I, I was kind of playing around uh, on my own. Uh, I wrote uh, a review of a, a Ferrari, just kind of, uh, I had the opportunity to to borrow the car for a couple of days, so I did a review of that on my personal site, which uh, ultimately wound up on Joe Hopnick. But it was interesting just to see the reaction of of that kind of writing. Uh, people were very eager to see that sort of thing, and people were very eager to see more of that from me. Um, so, you know, and of course, I was getting a lot of suggestions about where I should go and what I should do. Uh, and that was that was great to see too. 
Doing things like writing the Ferrari piece, did that help solidify the type of thing you wanted to be doing going forward? Yeah, the uh, my ability to do that and the the positive reaction that I got from that was definitely very encouraging. Uh, you know, I um, uh, I've always loved writing reviews, and I've always felt like if you take the same sort of critical and uh, analytical perspective to to a given product, it doesn't really matter what that product is, so long as you have a good grasp of the the world in which that product exists in terms of competition and consumer demands and that kind of thing. Uh, that you can kind of take the same basic approach uh, and same basic feel to to pretty much anything that you understand understand well. Uh, and so uh, to find that, that my tone and my approach and, and my writing style uh, was well received by the automotive community too uh, was, was encouraging. Uh, and to have um, a Matt, the editor-in-chief of Jalopnik, reach out and say that he enjoyed the review uh, and that he wanted to run it, um, that was really encouraging for me. So yeah, absolutely. It definitely gave me, uh, gave me a, lot of, uh, a lot of things to think about. Is there anything you miss from Engadget? Uh, I miss the team. Uh, yeah. I mean, I still keep in touch with all those guys and gals. Uh, they became a big extended family for me. When you work that closely with people for that long, uh, you definitely uh, get some some strong uh, strong feelings for for everybody. Uh, and so it's definitely, you know, I, I see them a lot. I saw them at CES, and uh, I, I try to get together with them whenever I can and stay in touch. But uh, ultimately, it's, you know, it's it's pretty difficult to be as close in contact as we were when we when we were all in a chat room together for, you know, twelve fourteen hours a day. Uh, so far and away, that's that's the biggest thing that I that I miss. Is there anything that you don't miss? Um, there's a certain company with uh, three letters as a name that uh, <laughs> uh, I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of somebody else, but you know, I'll let, let people work that out on their own. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking back on your time at Engadget, is there anything with hindsight that you would have done differently? Like maybe any chances you didn't take or new things that you wanted to make but didn't? No, we took a lot of chances. Um, Distro, the the magazine that, that we launched uh, uh, under my watch was definitely a big chance. Um, we you know we launched the conference. We uh, redid the mobile apps. We did a lot of interesting things, some of which paid out, some of which didn't. So I feel like given the resources that we had, um, uh, well, I think we did a lot of interesting things, uh, and I'm pretty proud of all the stuff that we did. Uh, in terms of things that I wish that we had done, or wish that I had personally done, uh, unfortunately, it, all those things relate to um, corporate maneuvering and machinations, which I don't really want to get into, and yeah, nobody sure. probably wants to hear about <laughs> anyway. Uh, those are the, the, the sorts of things where I have regrets. Uh, it was all uh, internal stuff that um, that would take a series of podcasts to explain, and at the end, nobody would nobody would probably care anyway. That was kind of what I expected, and, and I guess it's kind of, in a way, maybe refreshing to hear, you know, that the, the things that you would have wished you would have done differently are not things that the public would have seen, you know, like, in a big, like, sort of specific way. It's kind of just the stuff that goes on in the background, all the internal politics and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly things that we could have done better. Um, if you look at the first uh, Engadget Show episodes after I took over, those are... Uh, those are awful. Uh, I'll be the first to say it. Um, but but ultimately, you know, those were uh, given the situation where I was kind of thrown in there last minute, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, more or less, as a host. Uh, you know, given the situation, uh, they, those are valuable experiences for me, and so I don't have any regrets about doing it. But um, certainly, looking back, those could have been done better. So there are a few things like that. Um, but but no, in general, I think we were risky where we needed to be and conservative where we needed to be. Um, and and yeah, everything else is. Everything else is uh, internal uh, corporate BS sort of stuff, so we'll leave it at that. 
I want to take a quick break uh, to thank our first sponsor of this week's episode, but then we're going to talk about CNET. That sounds so, good. This week's episode is brought to you by the fine folks over at Squarespace. They are the only one platform that make it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALLYHO2. Squarespace is constantly making sure that their platform is up to date with new features, designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates that you can get started with and tons of style options that you can adjust so you can really create your own space online. Everything in Squarespace is drag and drop, so it's easy to add content from your desktop and even rearrange elements of content all within a page or within the web browser. Squarespace makes sure that your site looks fantastic on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design and you can easily connect and share information with Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google and many, many more web and social services. This is all built right in. Squarespace also has an e-commerce platform called Squarespace Commerce. So if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can do that in just a few minutes. Squarespace Commerce has been upgraded and expanded and now is available for on any Squarespace plan. It used to be just on their business plan, but now any Squarespace plan can, can use Squarespace Commerce. Squarespace is really easy to use, but if you need any help, they have over 70 dedicated employees on their customer care team based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week and have super fast email support throughout the day and night. And listen up for a special special announcement from Squarespace. If you want to be a part of the Squarespace team, now is your time. Squarespace are looking to hire 30 engineers and designers by March 15th. This means they're inviting potential candidates, it could be you, and their spouses to be New Yorkers for a weekend completely on them. So if you want to hang out with the crew over at Squarespace and take a shot at getting a position with those awesome guys, then check out beapartofit.squarespace.com to find out more. Now, as I said earlier, you can try out Squarespace for free. There's no credit card required to do that, and if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure that you get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code TALLYHO2, that's T-A-L-L-Y-H-O and the number 2. So thank you to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. So Tim, you joined CNET in August 2013, I, I believe. Well, that was at least when it was announced. Right. I officially started uh, the beginning of September, but yeah, it was announced mid, mid-August. Out of all of the offers that you received, why did you decide that CNET was the place for you? Uh, like I mentioned before, I did receive, uh, I, I had a lot of great conversations and received some, some very good offers that were, were all very tempting. Um, but CNET felt right for me for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one thing, I knew Lindsay there, the, the editor on the review side of thing at, at CNET, uh, and she's she's great. Um, you know, she and I had some conversations over the years. Um, you know, we didn't spend a whole lot of time together, but she and I, of course, were very busy running our respective properties, so they didn't give us a lot of free time. But but I had respect for her and respect for the team that she'd built up uh, and respect for the work that they were doing. And, and I knew that they'd had some uh, challenges, of course, with uh, everything that went down uh, regarding Dish at uh, the, the CES the year before. Um, but I knew that uh, the team had rebounded, and I spent a lot of time talking with some other folks who were at CNET about um, you know, the feeling within the team and, and how they were all reacting to that, and whether or not that was actually an issue day-to-day or whether that was really just uh, a really unfortunate one-time situation. Um, and so uh, I felt pretty good about things there. Uh, the offer in terms of the work that I'd be doing was very good because 
you know, uh, if I wasn't, you know, I had the choice uh, in a couple of offers to take over property again and to build up a team or to uh, build traffic or to really shape a site uh, to try to take a, a site and make it bigger, you know, to do the traditional leadership stuff. Um, or I had the opportunity at a couple of places to go. Uh, to go and do some writing and to really focus on the sort of things that I always enjoyed, you know, the things that brought me into this industry in the first place. Um, and so, you know, I decided after after everything that went down at Engadget that I kind of wanted to step away from the um, from the building side of things for a little while uh, and to kind of get back in touch with uh, with uh, the writing side of things because if there was one thing that suffered at the time uh, that I was at Engadget, uh, well, my personal life suffered. But beyond that, uh, my writing also suffered because I simply didn't have time to do the writing that I wanted to do. Um, so this is going to be an opportunity for me to do a lot of writing uh, and a lot of interesting things uh, and to really cross the bridge between the, the consumer tech world and the automotive world, too, which was something that I was looking to do. Uh, I did have some opportunities purely on the automotive side. Um, but I decided that I didn't really want to leave tech behind um, because it's it's a place that I love too. So it's a very complicated um, reason, uh, as these things usually are. You know, there's no one thing that made me think, yeah, this is the right place. Uh, but I had a lot of conversations with a lot of great people at CNET, uh, and uh, and that was the the right decision. Your job title, if I'm correct, is editor at large. Yeah, actually, that was a a big point of discussion between uh, Lindsay and I and uh, Mark Larkin and I as well, who's the GM over at CNET, who's a great guy and who also helped to convince me that uh, that that was the place for me. Uh, We had, I'm trying to think how many different titles we went through before we kind of fell back to editor-at-large just because that was the only one that kind of seemed like a, a big enough catch-all to uh, to apply. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a little bit vague. Uh, it doesn't really mean much of anything, but um, but that is that is it, for better or worse. What does it mean to you? Uh, to me, it means that I am kind of out and about uh, looking into things that are interesting, writing about things that are interesting, um, and uh, and traveling a lot too, which is definitely true. Um, so it, it basically means that I'm out in the industry um, kind of checking the pulse on things and uh, writing about uh, what's happening. Aside from the writing that you do at CNET, do you have any other additional responsibilities or have you handed that stuff over completely now with the new role? No, I definitely do. In fact, I'm picking up some more things as we speak, uh, which will probably be uh, out in the, in the public before too long. But um, basically, some of the other tasks that I'm working are internal focus, so trying to help and improve some procedures for for basic stuff internally, um, you know, uh, speed on live blogs, quality of live blogs, um, doing a little bit of work in terms of, um, you know, social presence and, and that kind of thing, really to help to provide a little bit of guidance and, and uh, share some of the, the knowledge and experience that I picked up adding gadgets. Um, that's been pretty casual, though. You know, I've been trying to sh- lend a helping hand where I can, uh, but ultimately, you know, the CNET team is very big and very strong, so I don't need to be uh, inserting myself in there too strongly. Um, but there are some other tasks like that going on internally where I've been helping out, and also in terms of helping the brand be a little bit more um, transparent when it comes to concerns that are raised by other people. Uh, I-, I do think that was uh, a concern by a lot of people that when the dish thing was going down, it took a little while for the folks at CNET to really come out and say, hey, here's what's going on. Uh, and I want to make sure that if you know there are any other concerns like that, that, uh, that we're on top of it much more quickly. Um, so that's something that I've been, I've actually been actively going to Reddit and searching for complaints about CNET and trying to be responsive. And, and, and indeed, if anybody has any concerns, uh, I would love to hear them because I want to make sure that that if people have any uh, concerns or doubts about uh, the content that, that we're generating, that, um, that that we know about it so that we can address it. I think that's an interesting point because I feel like, I well, I f- feel at least being like, you know, an observer of this stuff and having my own opinions that 
you joining CNET kind of helped shift people's opinion, or at least it did for me anyway, because I was like, well, if Tim trusts them, then there, there must be some, some good there, and it maybe was this one-time thing. Because I, I think that the CNET name hasn't been tarnished in a long term, and I feel like it quite easily could have been. Mm. And I and I do wonder if maybe you know some of the change because I mean there were some other sort of significant changes there. It kind of seemed like some of it was definitely done in the right way. But it's definitely refreshing to hear that that there's like some some things have been learnt and you're actually spending time working on to make sure that 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 this stuff is like accountable. Yeah, and that's 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 great to hear that you're saying that because that was that was far and away my biggest concern. Uh, I mean, I didn't have any concerns about the stability of CBS in general or CNET. Um, you know, the traffic numbers I saw and the growth we're seeing, everything there was encouraging. Um, you know, everything else about the the opportunity was great. That was really my one big concern was the damage that had been done to CNET uh, and what the 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 feeling within the team was going to be after what had gone down at CES. Uh, and as I was asking people at CNET about it, you know, most of them were, you know, they hadn't really thought about it in, in a long time because it really was something that was obviously traumatic at the time, but ultimately it wasn't something that was in any way affecting them uh, on a day-to-day basis. And they'd all pretty much made their peace with it and, and moved on. Uh, and of course, there were some folks who could not make their peace with it and who, who chose to to leave at that time, uh, some of them rather publicly. Um, but in general, that was, uh, again, something that was a really ugly, unfortunate situation um, that that I think was handled and the team moved on. And so as I spoke with everybody about it, I got to feel quite comfortable that it wasn't the sort of thing that I had to worry about. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I did have that concern that, that there was still that perception about seeing that out there. Uh, so I'm, you know, uh, at the time I was doing everything I could to dispel that. And, and if indeed anybody still has any concerns about that, I'm happy to talk to you and uh, to uh, help to dispel it further. One of the columns that you, you write uh, regularly is Tech Retrospect. What is that? Um, that is basically an evolution of the editor's letter that I wrote for Distro each week. Um, Distro was the, the weekly magazine we had at a gadget that was kind of a curated version of, uh, of the best in tech that week. Um, so I definitely got a lot of response from people at that time that it was great that I had this thing that people could read and kind of get up to speed on what was going on in the world of tech. Because as you well know, um, things happen at a mile a minute. Uh, and if you blink or if you take your eyes off of your Twitter feed, um, suddenly Lenovo is buying Motorola or something like that. And it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy to miss these sorts of things. Um, so the basic idea is to have this one uh, easily digestible column each week that kind of breaks it down. I do add a bit of perspective, but I try to keep the editorializing to a minimum. Um, and it's just the kind of thing that sh- if you are a, a you know a fan of tech, but a kind of a casual fan of tech, not the kind of person who wants to be hitting uh, the news feeds all the time, um, you can have enough information to, to sound educated at the water cooler at the end of the week. Um, and it goes out as part of the CNET newsletter on Friday uh, to people. So you know if, if people aren't checking the site regularly, they can uh, get it there through their email as well. And I think it's just a nice, easily digestible way to, to get the stories each week. And it's also a good way to force me to make sure that I'm keeping up on everything too. Because uh, even if you're in the industry, it's still pretty easy to, you know, if you go heads down on a feature or something like that, to, um, to miss some big development. So it forces me to, to, uh, to keep an eye on what's going on. So we mentioned that your your sort of topic areas have, have broadened a bit, and as well as technology, you're keeping with your, your passion of automotive and incorporating some of that writing into CNET too. But what types of story are you looking? Do you look to cover now? Do you do news, reviews, op-eds, interviews? Like what sort of stuff do you do? You do, and what sort of stuff do you want to do more of? 
I do a bit of news here and there. Uh, every now and again, uh, a press contact will come to me with a feature or some new something that they're launching, which is interesting, uh, and they, they want to give that story to me. So I, I may write a, a quick news piece about that sort of thing. Uh, I am doing the occasional interview as well, uh, depending upon the story again. Uh, but by and large, I'm looking for interesting stories that I don't think are being told at all or that I don't think are being told uh, with enough depth and enough perspective. Um, so, for example, at at CES this past year, um, the Eureka Park area has been increasingly one of my favorite places. This is where uh, a lot of the startups come. So Kickstarter, Darlings, and Indiegogo companies and things like that all kind of gather into a couple of different conference rooms and show off their stuff. Um, and for a lot of companies, this is like an afterthought. You know, uh, bigger um, journalist enterprises will come in there on the last day, if at all. They might wander through quickly and pretty much ignore everything. But there are a lot of great stories there. So I, I spent about a day and a half wandering through there and talking to a couple of different companies and getting a feel for what was going on. And I chose to write a big profile on a company uh, called Teddy the Guardian, uh, which is these two entrepreneurs out of Croatia who had won a competition to get the money to come to CES to show off this teddy bear uh, that can be deployed into hospitals and can basically detect the the, um, the blood pulse and the uh, blood oxygen levels of, of kids without scaring them, without presenting them with any big ugly medical devices or anything like that. Um, you know, simple technology, um, a small startup, but a really cool story about how those two got there. And that was a story that had been touched on by uh, TechCrunch, wrote a little piece about it, and a few other companies had written a, a, a few small things about the device itself, but they'd more or less... Uh, skipped the whole story of how these two got there, which to me was was fascinating. Uh, I spent hours talking to them about the whole process of applying for this competition and everything like that. Uh, to me, that was a great story that was not being told. So, so that's one of the features that I'm pretty proud of. Um, I also wrote a big feature on uh, the Pebble Steel, the new smartwatch that also launched at CES and went and talked to Eric, the CEO, um, spent a lot of time looking at the prototype designs and things like that. And I really wanted to, in that case, tell the tale of the engineering of the product, how they went through the various revisions, the sort of things that they were looking to deliver with the new design, the, the considerations that were being made, um, the priorities that they had. Because in the world of engineering, of course, it's all a game of, of picking your priorities and choosing what you want to include and what gets left on the drawing board. Uh, and that sort of discussion and that sort of development fascinates me. You know, I, I want to know what the product almost looked like but didn't wind up looking like, you know, what they wanted to look like and how close were they able to get to that initial design. Um, those sorts of tales fascinate me. So those are the things that I'm really trying to tell, uh, and I, I, hope that, I hope that other people find them interesting. I, mean, I, I think that's a, a good way of doing things, like that you're diving in and doing more in-depth stuff. I, I can see that this is clearly something that's pushing your buttons right now. Yeah, I, I get very excited. I mean, when I was down... Uh, at Pebble HQ and talking with the designers and talking with everybody there, uh, I mean, I, I definitely get very excited to see to see the prototype designs, to see the renderings and things like that. Um, and those are the sorts of things that take a long time to put, you know, that took a while to put that piece together, both in terms of the interviews and, and the negotiations to get everything, all the rights and everything set up, um, to get the video crew down there to, to do all the footage that we needed and, and the photographs and everything. Um, these things take take quite a bit of time. And, and it's great that I'm given the, the opportunity to do those sorts of things because your average tech journalist, your average tech blogger, you know, they don't have more than a half an hour to get a given story up. Uh, these things take, take days or, or longer to, to really put them together and to do it right. Uh, and so, so that's a great luxury that I have and something that I'm very, very appreciative of. 
Now, I want to take a, a second break, and then I want to talk about the world of uh, automobile, automobiles and automotive journalism and tech journalism, and how they clash and sort of intersect against each other. So I think that might be quite interesting to discuss. But our second sponsor for this week is LegalZoom. So some things like starting a business or protecting your family with a will aren't like your other New Year's resolutions. You can't afford to blow them off. Instead of less snacking and more exercise, put them at the top of your list. LegalZoom helps you incorporate a form, or form, sorry, in an LLC with their simple questionnaire starting at just $99. Over 1 million entrepreneurs have done this with LegalZoom. And 90% of customers recommend LegalZoom to friends and family. So you know that you're going to get an awesome deal with them. You can also create a will starting at just $69 or even a living trust quickly and easily. And get peace of mind and protection. No surprise fees, no hassles, and no headaches. LegalZoom's step-by-step process was created by a team of experts in law and technology. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but can connect you with a third-party attorney and provide you with self-help services. From wills to business formations, trademarks, powers of attorney, and more, go to LegalZoom.com. For even more savings, you want to type the offer code CMD into the referral box at checkout. Don't put off the things that you need to do. Go to LegalZoom now and use the discount code CMD. That's LegalZoom.com, discount code CMD. If they're the type of person that like needs to do any of this sort of stuff, so you know, you're an individual or you're starting your own business, LegalZoom can help you with all of the difficult stuff, so go check them out. Thank you so much to LegalZoom for sponsoring this week's episode of Command Space and supporting all of 5x5. So, Tim, now that you're spending more time covering the both the auto world and the tech world, what do you see to be some of the biggest differences between these two worlds of journalism? Uh, it's amazing how different the two worlds are. They are um, very, very diverse, both in terms of um, the feel of events, the the way that the content is covered, the the pace of the coverage, um, the blood pressure of the, your average journalist in the two worlds. Uh, it's very, very, very different uh, at all levels. Um, you know, I was just at a uh, at a motorcycle launch this past weekend and talking with some of the motorcycle journalists there um, and they were talking back and forth about when they were going to file their stories and how long they were going to be and whether they were going online, which is kind of a, a quaint notion that you'd be discussing whether or not a given story was going to appear online or if it was just going to appear in print at, at this point. In 2014, um, you know. In 2014, <laughs> yeah. And I started to tell them about you know how tech journalism works because none of them ha- have a tech journalism background at all and I was telling them how you know in the world of tech journalism there wouldn't be any debate about when it was going to be posted, you would simply start writing the second you had gathered all the information that you needed. You would sit down. It didn't matter if it was in the corner of the room. It didn't matter if it was in the middle of the road. You would, As soon as you could get connection and get to your keyboard, you start writing and, and that thing would be filed ASAP and that's simply the way it is in that world. Uh, and that's, you know, the automotive world is starting to move that way now with, uh, you know, the pace is picking up. There's a lot more news happening. There's a lot more churn happening in the automotive world than there used to be. And so I wouldn't be surprised if automotive journalists are a lot more like tech journalists in a couple of years than they are now. But for now, in general, you know, the, the pace is much more relaxed, um, which is great. Uh, so that perspective on your given automotive piece and your, your average uh, tech um, blog repost, that kind of thing, which, which is good. Um, and, and these guys, in, in general, tend to know a lot about, um, a lot about the industry. And they, they tend to know the industry a little bit more closely, I think, than your average tech journalist does in terms of the, uh, the, the personnel within the companies. You know, the designers of, of a given car are, are much more uh, respected than in 
tech journalism where you know there's Johnny Ive at Apple and you know your average tech journalist might be able to name one or two other product designers but that's probably it whereas your average auto journalist could probably name the major designers at, at every car manufacturer and name which cars they've designed and name which company they worked at before and which cars they did there uh, so it's a very different world uh, in that regard too um, but I, I guess probably the biggest difference is the the events themselves so if you go to a big car show you know, everybody is wearing a tie. Just about everybody's wearing a tie. Everyone's dressed really nicely. Um, the press conferences, everyone's serving cappuccino. They'll give you breakfast. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very, very high end affair. These car companies have very comfortable profit margins in general. So, and they spend a lot of money on these events to make sure that they go off very well. Everything is very well orchestrated. And it's a very, um, very nice uh, sort of experience compared to your average tech event like CES where you're running around like mad. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying to grab a granola bar whenever you can. Are the automotive press generally treated better by the car companies than than with tech press? Very much so, yes, absolutely. But it's also a very different sort of relationship uh, on the automotive side than on the tech side. Uh, in general, if there's a tech event, um, by and large, most of the major journalists have paid their own way to get there. You know, if Samsung's launching a phone uh, in, in Hong Kong, uh, a lot of the journalists are, will have paid their own way to get to Hong Kong to see that phone. Um, that's not true for all the journalists. There are certainly, uh, and it's becoming actually more common to get paid travel to go to these sorts of events as these events are getting more common. Um, but by and large, uh, the major outlets are paying their own way. Uh, on the automotive side of things, if there's a big product launch, if you know, Ferrari is launching a car and they want everybody in Bologna to see it, Ferrari will call you up and ask you what airport you want to leave from and they will give you uh, first class tickets to get there. Um, and so that's a very different sort of thing. And again, that's not not total across the industry. There are some outlets that, that don't allow that to happen. They'll pay their own travel still on the automotive side of things. Um, but a car launch is very different from uh, from a phone launch in that it tends to be a couple of days long. You tend to be staying at a very nice hotel, um, eating very well, driving on some amazing roads. And it's very easy to look at that and think that that these car companies are effectively buying um, buying good coverage, you know, bribing these journalists with with this great uh, you know this great weekend getaway somewhere fantastic, and that is true in some ways. But you also have to think about it. You know, if somebody sends you a smartphone, it might cost them twenty dollars to ship it to you. Um, you can use it anywhere. Uh, you, you can get a very effective test in your home, and then you can ship it back at the end of that. Um, if Ferrari wants to send me a car. It's going to cost a lot of money for them to do that, uh, and then depending on where I live, I might have a very bad experience with that car. If I live in a city, uh, I'm not going to have a lot of fun driving this Ferrari around, and I'm not going to give it a very good test. So what Ferrari wants to do is make sure that they're controlling the situation, that they're going to bring you – I'm just using Ferrari as an example, of course. They all pretty much do this. They want to put you in the best possible scenario to get the best out of this machine that they've spent years engineering that's going to make them millions and billions of dollars. Um, so they'll choose you know, a very nice place with very nice roads, uh, and they'll try to create a very nice experience for you. Um, there are definitely some journalists, I think, who are a little bit too cozy with uh, the, the PR people. Um, but, but in general, it is a much closer sort of relationship on the automotive side than, than on the tech side. In the tech world, people scream, you know, bloody murder when something like this happens. Or they say that, you know, there's massive conflicts of interest. Yeah. Is it different in the automotive world because pretty much everybody does it? 
I think that's definitely a big part of it. It's just sort of expected. Um, you know, if you don't know that whether or not the automotive magazine or publication that you're reading does this, there's a pretty good chance that they are doing it. Um, you know, Joe Opnick is one of the few that puts it really upfront about exactly what they were given um, for any given uh, any given piece that they're writing. But they're accepting it as well. You know, they're they're at these junkets, they're at these product launches, um, and it's just part of. It's part of the experience, and ultimately, there's really no other way to do it um, because, again, the car manufacturers, they can't ship cars to all the journalists all over the place. It's much cheaper for them to put a guy on a plane and fly him to Europe uh, to try to car than it would be to try to put that car on a plane and fly back the other way. Um, so it does make sense, um, and it's really it's up to the individual journalists themselves to be very aware of exactly what's going on to make sure that they're not being compromised based on some lavish dinner or some lavish gift that, that they've been given. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a sticky situation. It's a complicated situation for sure. And it's one that I think is probably going to um, spread more to the world of tech journalism, I think, than the other way. I think we'll probably be seeing more junkets like this that tech journalists will be going to in the near future rather than uh, automotive journalists doing less of it. Are there any automotive companies that work fundamentally more like a tech company? Like, are there any pairings you could make? We could be like Mercedes is kind of like Samsung in the way that they do business with with you, or just the way that you see them do business in general. Um, no, I'd say there's a vast uh, difference between the two, um, between the two worlds uh, of products. Um, uh, and uh, it's tough to say. I mean, there are some companies that are much more open and welcoming than others. But again, that's very much like the tech world too, where there are some companies that are. You know, they they love to give you all their news and they love to have you at their events. And there are other companies that will really only send you a press release if they know who you are even. Um, you know, I, I won't name names, but people can probably figure that out exactly uh, who I'm referring to there. But and it's very much the same way on, on the car company side as well. There are some car companies that, that really want you to be included at everything. There are other car companies that want to build a relationship. They want to make sure that they know you before they're including you on, uh, on press distributions and uh, embargoes and that kind of thing. Um, so no, it, it's definitely a very different world. Um, so I don't really see any any obvious parallels there. Apple kind of changed the way that products are introduced in the technology world. You know, the 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 way that Steve Jobs gave his keynotes and the way that there was this big hype around the the events and things like that. Has any of that presentation style moved over into the automotive world? If anything, the automotive world was doing it before Steve Jobs was doing it. Um, and if anything, I wouldn't be surprised if he took some inspiration from from the automotive world, uh, because these sort of big uh, big showcase launches where the CEO is up on stage talking about how amazing this new product is and running down um, their sales in the previous year and the sorts of things that that consumers are demanding. And here's the the great big advancements this year. Um, that's stuff that the automotive world has been doing for some time now. Uh, I think that they're probably a little bit more polished about it than before. And I think Apple in general has caused everyone across all industries, if they're launching a product, to be a lot more buttoned up than perhaps they were in the past. Uh, but ultimately, that that general feel is something that, that has been uh, a part of the automotive industry for, for some time now. So I think that, if anything, uh, came from the automotive world first. Do you prefer one world over the other? It's tough to say. Uh, I, I do like the the pace of the, te the tech news world. I mean, there's so much going on. It's always very exciting. It's always very interesting, uh, and it's it's great to to kind of to feel the the loyalty of the readers and, and how they're kind of rooting for the different companies, like they might be rooting for you know their sports team and that kind of thing. I always really enjoyed that uh, and kind of feeling that pulse. 
Um, but by and large, the the automotive industry is much more mature and much more um, you know much more regimented and a little bit more predictable, which makes it a lot easier to cover for sure. Uh, and when they've got a big product coming out, they know about that big product coming out, you know, um, long, long in advance, much more so than than a tech company does. Which means that you can really uh, work with a company to get great stories and great access and and tell great tales long before, because you know you have so much lead time leading up to to that deadline uh, that you can do something spectacular. Uh, that's the hope, anyway. I'm still still getting there since I haven't really been doing this all that long myself. Uh, so. I think that they're both interesting. They both have their own appeals. Uh, but certainly, again, the automotive world is a much more relaxed world to cover. Uh, you can go to an automotive show um, and kind of walk around and take in the sights and enjoy things. And uh, and that's a little bit different than than the average pace at CES, that kind of thing. You've just led me right in. This is a perfect segue. So I want to talk about CES a little bit. Because uh, you, you recently were at, C- you were at CES this year, right? I was at CES, yes. My first time with with CNET. How long have you been attending CES? I was trying to think that. I think that was my it was either my fifth or my sixth CES, one or the other. So I've been going there for a pretty good amount of time, I would say. Does that make you a veteran amongst your peers, or are you a junior at six years? Uh, it's interesting. You know, among some people who've been going for twenty or thirty years, I'm definitely a junior. But but certainly a lot of the you know the, there's a lot of turnover in the, in the world of tech journalism, of course. So there are a lot of people who've who've only been there once or twice. So I'd say I'm squarely mid-pack. Have you always attended for work, or have you ever attended personally? No, I've never attended personally. It was always always for work, and it was always for for Engadget or for a site called Switched, which was kind of um, my entree into tech blogging, which was also an AOL property that was basically Engadget Lite. Uh, when I first went to CES, I was kind of half and half for Switched and Engadget, and then after that, it was full-time Engadget. Do you think you ever would have or would ever in the future go to CES specifically for fun? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, if you're just going for fun, uh, then you're, you're missing out probably on uh, the private events where a lot of news is happening. Um, you know, uh, there is a lot of great stuff to see in the show floor for sure. But um, but honestly, no, I don't think I would go for fun. It's it's so insane. There's so much to see. There's so much so much noise. So much churn. Um, you know, the only reason that I would go to CES for fun would be to see all the people in the industry who who I who I love. You know, I would go and I I'd, I'd hang out with all my friends. All my tech journalist buddies, who I only see a couple times a year, uh, that would be a great excuse for me to go to CES. I, you know, I might not even get on the show floor if I weren't working. I'd just be going from trailer to tra- trailer, saying hello and uh, and getting drinks with everybody, even though I don't drink. <laughs> you could be getting like cranberry juice or everyone else. I can be the designated driver for everybody. Oh, you must be a big hit. I, I am a, I'm a cheap date and the designated driver, which makes me a popular person for sure. <laughs> so, how do you go about planning? for a team to attend CES? Like, have you ever been involved in setting up a trailer or a satellite office of some description? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, as part of the Engadget team, I would be there pretty early on helping to, you know, helping get the table set up and that kind of thing. Uh, at Engadget, you know, part of my goal was always to make sure that that I set up this great foundational team, you know, that, that could be very self-sufficient. Uh, and so that was definitely our biggest uh, our 
biggest strength going into CES was that we had this great team uh, full of great people who could really pull everything together and do all the organization and um, and make it work. So, you know, I was very involved with a lot of the planning, but by and large, I didn't have to be involved with a lot of the nitty gritty details uh, that that went together. And I mean, ultimately, it was it was flawless. Um, you know, it's a big, big task to bring thirty or forty or fifty or sixty people to Las Vegas for a week when, you know. Tens of hundreds of thousands of people are also flying in that week, so all the hotels are booked, everything's overpriced, the flights are booked. Um, it's an insane undertaking, uh, and uh, and so you know the only way that you can do that is with with a great uh, great team, which which we had at, at Engadget when I was there, and uh, and you know s- still there, uh, and then um, at CNET as well. There's a great events planning team. We have uh, an amazing huge stage uh, there, which is. You know, beautiful to behold, and you know, show up day one, and it's up there, and it's beautiful, and it looks great. Uh, again, a huge trailer setup as well, uh, and and again, all that's pretty much pretty much taken care of for me at this point. I was not involved at all with the, the CES planning at, at CNET, which made things um, made things a little bit easier for me. How big a team do you have a show like CNET uh, uh, CES? Sorry, with CNET or with Engadget? Um, I think at Engadget this year it was vastly smaller than the year before. I think the year before we had something on the order of 50 to 60 total people there if you counted uh, the editorial team and the video team and everybody else. I think this year it was maybe half of that um, for Engadget, but I'm honestly not sure. Uh, and again, I'm not sure of the total size of the CNET team, but I think it was on the order of, um, boy, honestly, I'm not sure. But it was definitely on the order of 40 to 60, somewhere in that range, I think. Yeah. But uh, but I'm not sure if that would count. Uh, I mean, there are if you even move past the the editorial teams who are making the content work. There's of course video production, which is a huge undertaking, and a lot of people are there just to keep that stage operational. Then of course there are sales teams there because CES is a great opportunity to make your advertisers happy, um, and a lot of other product reps and everything else who are there for the company. So I would hazard to guess exactly the the total CNET size this year. What does an average day at CES look like? First off, what time do you start? <laughs> well, it's interesting because it was very different um, at Engadget than at, at CNET. So at Engadget, I would start probably at 5 a.m., uh, get up, do uh, an East Coast news appearance at some you know local affiliate or something like that talking about how great CNET or CES is. <laughs> um, and then I would get up, go to the trailer, uh, and probably help put out some fires for a couple of hours, uh, making sure that everybody was where they needed to be, call some people who were supposed to be in the morning shift but were sleeping in, that kind of thing. Uh, and then once uh, <laughs> the Engadget stage opened up, I would be there doing uh, interviews and things like that for most of the day. Um, and then at night it would be you know, making sure that people were getting off to the evening events and everything else and doing some orchestrations there. Um, at CNET, a very different thing. I was still up pretty early just to make sure that, that the news cycle was happening. Uh, but there, you know, again, I was focused on features, so I was definitely doing a lot of digging in and um, getting prepared to see where I should go and making sure that the appointments that I had were set up. Um, and then I was doing some uh, some booth tours as well, which is another important thing that, that a lot of people don't think about at, at CES. So. You know, if you have important clients who are going to be at CES, one way to, um, to to make their experience a little bit better is to give them a booth tour, which is where you kind of walk around and show them the cool stuff at CES. It's something that I did for AOL um, back in the Engadget days and something I did here as well at CNET. So I did a couple of those early in the morning uh, before things got too crazy. And then I'd be, you know, walking around looking for interesting things, doing interviews, uh, checking out products. Uh, and then I would pretty much spend the evenings um, writing up what I'd seen that day and getting the features ready for for the next day. So it was, um, you know, still long days, a little bit less long than than in Gadget for sure. 
Uh, it's still a lot of work to be done, though. Do you usually have uh, like backroom meetings and briefings in hotel rooms and stuff like that when you're there? It's a mixture of the two. At CES this year, I didn't do a lot of that uh, because you know CNN's got such a great team, and they've all got their product categories locked down, their product um, sources locked down. So pretty much all the existing CNET team had had all the embargoes locked down and everything locked down. So there was a lot of that going on. But I personally, no, I didn't. I don't think I had any. Um, you know, pre-brief embargoes or anything like that this year. Everybody else pretty much took care of that for me, which was which was fantastic. So, the team had all that locked down. For me, it was more about finding the stories that were kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Um, so it was much more about walking around the show floor and finding those things. You know, the companies that didn't necessarily have a big um, a big PR presence and, and doing some interviews as well. Uh, I did an interview with Ford's CTO, for example, about their announcements at the show and a few things like that too. Do you uh, attend like the big keynotes and big presentations? I did some of them. Yeah, I did. Uh, I think I only did one live blog this year, uh, which was low for me. I usually do more, but yeah, I did a f- attend a few of the, the the bigger ones just so I could see what was going on and to make sure that I had the news as it was happening. Uh, and yeah, at, at Mobile World Congress as well, which is coming up here in Barcelona, which is very much um, Spain's CES, I'll be doing uh, a lot more live blogging there too. Uh, the events are definitely a lot of fun to go to, the, the big keynote presentations. Um, there's always a lot of excitement, uh, and it's always great to be there when the news is happening. Do you enjoy live blogging? I do, yeah. It's one of my favorite things, and it's it's interesting because I don't really know anybody else who really enjoys it. It's For most people, it's, it's a task. Um, but for me, it's like this perfect culmination of uh, my fast typing ability, which was crafted through uh, years of late nights wasted on internet chat rooms back in the RC days. Uh, you know, I can finally put all those fast typing skills to use. Um, so yeah, I, I do enjoy live blogging, so I'm going to be doing uh, a bunch of that here in Barcelona coming up. Is Mobile World Congress tamer than CES? You know, I'll be honest, this will be my first Mobile World Congress, so I have nothing to gauge that on. I have been booked to go to Mobile World Congress for the past three years running, um, but always right before uh, something came up uh, and caused me to cancel it, and it was always some corporate emergency or something like that 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 kept me in the U.S. So I've not been able to get to Barcelona yet, so this is going to be my first time, so I have no idea what to expect um, other than uh, a lot of briefings and a lot of live blogs um, and probably a little bit of jet lag mixed in too. So I just have one more uh, sponsor to thank for this week's episode. A few more questions before we wrap up, Tim, if that's okay. That sounds perfect. So I want to take a moment to thank New Relic for sponsoring this week's episode too. If you've got a web or mobile application, you need to know about New Relic. New Relic is a developer's best friend because it's easy to use analytics dashboard that gives developers powerful code level visibility into real-time performance of their applications. This means you can spot bugs, see bottlenecks, and fix problems fast before they ever affect your users. Thanks to New Relic, you no longer have to ship an app to production and then helplessly wait around, hoping for the best until negative app reviews and tweets start to pour in. New Relic empowers software engineers by showing them what's working and what isn't all in real time. The way it works is very straightforward. New Relic gives developers a lightweight agent that you unpackage into your production-level applications. The agent sits quietly and securely in the background, gathering real-time metrics across geographies, devices, platforms, all the way down to the end-user level, and then displays all that data in real-time graphs so that coders have total visibility into their performance of their web and mobile applications. So, go check out New Relic by visiting 
NewRelic.com slash command space. That's all spelled out. C-O-M-M-A-N-D-S-P-A-C-E. I think they're uh, just mocking the way that I say the command. <laughs> um, so go to command, go NewRelic.com slash command space to learn more and use the offer code CMD plus space at the name of the show and take advantage of this special 30-day extended free pro trial available exclusively to all listeners of command space build better performing apps get deeper insights spot bottlenecks quickly and improve performance with new relic thank you so much to new relic for sponsoring the show and five by five if you'd like to get uh, information about any of our sponsors or indeed any of the links we've spoken about today go to five by five tv slash cmd space slash 83 that's where you'll find the show notes if they really wanted to mock you, they would have put an H in there to make you say H, H instead of H. H. And then uh, then they really would have been playing with you, I think. <laughs> uh, it's a personal favorite of mine, um, the H, as in HTC. So, <laughs> I, I, my, one of my favorite companies, HTC, because I get to say that. So I hope they never go away. <laughs> I think you're safe for a little while. Tim, what's your favorite thing about CES? Favorite thing about CES, uh, it's definitely the the camaraderie camaraderie that comes out of it. Um, you know, it it to me is a lot like uh, a lot like boot camp or a lot like any other really challenging experience where you know you're going to come out of it one way or the other. Um, so it's just a question of how well you take it and how well you you work with everyone else around you. Um, and, and I think CES can definitely be uh, the greatest most uh, valuable team building experience there is you know companies spend a lot of money trying to come up with these fake team building exercises where people fall backwards off table and their coworkers hopefully catch them or you know doing rope training or you know putting together models and that kind of thing um, but really you know if you've got a great team and you throw them into CES uh, they'll come out an even better team uh, an even tighter team uh, but if you have a weak team then they're going to fall apart and they're going to be yelling and screaming at each other by the end of the week so, so so to me that was always the the best part of CES you know of course the news is great and the the traffic is great and the ad revenue is great and all those things uh, but um, but it's it's the the team building and the camaraderie for sure how long are you typically in Vegas for for CES when I was with Engadget, it was over a week. Um, it would be, you know, the, the pre-briefs, if I remember, starts usually on a Saturday before. Uh, I think I flew in the Thursday before and then would stay through the following Sunday. Um, this year at CNET, I think I flew in Saturday before. And actually, I left that Friday this year because I had to go to uh, to Detroit um, to get a pre-brief before the Detroit Auto Show, which happens the Monday after CES. So that's one of the... Uh, less enjoyable parts of crossing between tech and uh, and the automotive industry is that you get to do CES and then immediately go to Detroit, um, which if you think Las Vegas is uh, not a fun town, uh, then Detroit in January is definitely something that will change your perspective. Uh, but to go and do that back-to-back is a bit of a marathon, so that's um, that's that's a lot of fun. Are there any other shows that you want to attend this year? I mean, you, m- you mentioned Mobile World Congress. Is there anything else on your map? Yeah, I always love to go to SeaTac in Tokyo. That's um, the, the big Japanese consumer electronics show that happens in September. Uh, I usually get to go because I, I'm typically one of the, the awards judges there. So hopefully that'll, that'll uh, happen again this year and I'll be able to go. Um, and then the big um, European auto shows are always really interesting. So I believe this year it will be um, 
the Frankfurt Auto Show. It, it goes back and forth between Frankfurt and Paris, and I think we're at Frankfurt this year. That's a huge, huge auto show. Um, companies spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to build these massive booths to show off their cars. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago, and, and Audi built basically like uh, uh, this place that was the size of a small soccer stadium out in the parking lot with a track inside that you could drive the Audis around all within their booth. All that it was built up before the show and was torn down after the show. Um, completely outrageous, uh, and it's 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 quite a sight to see. So I hope to get up to that again as well. I remember I went to the uh, London Auto Show once mm-hmm. many years ago. I don't actually know if they still do it in London, but but they did for a, for a time, at least. And mm-hmm. this was many years ago. This was when there was a Thunderbirds live action movie. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Ford provided all of the cars, and they built a Tracy Island set inside the exhibition center in which they had all of the cars and all of the Thunderbirds <laughs> models in life size. It was insane. But yeah, so I can appreciate that they are... Um, because there's not a lot of products to be shown, the the companies take a lot of space and do interesting things with them. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing the difference in, in marketing spend between the automotive world and the consumer tech world. When Samsung had that crazy Galaxy S4 launch in, in New York City where they had um, everybody come and see a play, basically. Uh, people were going crazy about the, the money that they spent to, to pull that off, um, but that would pale in comparison to your average car launch. It's, it's truly a different world. What, which do you prefer? Do you prefer auto shows or consumer tech shows? Uh, you know, I would say that the the auto shows are a little bit more enjoyable because the the pace tends to be a little bit slower. Um, the the news is a little bit easier to cover as well. You can definitely cover an auto show well with a much smaller team than with a tech show because they're much more regimented about scheduling things. You know, the the Porsche conference will be at nine a.m. Uh, and then the BMW conference will be at nine thirty. Uh, and the news comes out at those times, so there isn't a lot of overlap. Like at CES, you know, uh, on on Monday morning, there'll be 15 press releases dropping at the same time, and that's that's insane. So the auto shows are much easier to cover, uh, and they're a lot more um, relaxing in that regard. Um, but you know, at this point, I still have more friends and more uh, colleagues on the tech side of things. So you know, looking from a personal perspective, uh, I probably do enjoy going to the the tech shows more. Mrs. Stevens. It has been an absolute pleasure having you back on the show again. It's been a pleasure being here. I really appreciate uh, the invite to come back. Uh, I have a great time chatting with you, and I'm honored to be uh, among folks like uh, Tom Merritt and uh, John Roderick we've had lately too, so thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Um, Where can people keep in touch with you if they would like to do so? Well, of course, CNET.com has uh, my best works uh, of late, so you definitely check me out on there. Uh, if you'd like to find me on Twitter, I am Tim underscore Stevens. Um, and uh, my personal site is DigitalDisplacement.com, uh, though lately I've been writing about um, sharpening axes and uh, old lumberjack saws and things like that. So that may not be the place that you want to go to get the latest from me, but, um, but those are some choices anyway. If you'd like to find uh, links to everything we've spoken about today, as I mentioned earlier, go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 83. My name is Mike Curley. I do a bunch of shows on the glorious 5x5 network, which you can find at 5x5.tv. And I am on Twitter. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. Until next time, bye-bye.